Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. You guys seem awfully jovial on this side of the aisle yeah, tonight. I don't, today, I don't know what that's about, but I'm glad to see it. Um, I thank our witnesses for being here today as we consider how the U.S. can modernize our development finance efforts. Our foreign assistance program should set the goal of putting themselves out of business. We should promote economic growth and job creation that will enable developing countries to stand on their own and provide their citizens with opportunity and lead them out of poverty. At no net cost to taxpayers, development finance institutions can play an important role in facilitating lending to help local businesses in the developing world grow and attract foreign investors. But our current agencies are not equipped for the 21st century challenges and opportunities. The Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC as we call it, used, uses public sector tools such as loans, guarantees, and insurance to provide private sector investment flows into the developing world, into the developing world where access to capital at market rates may not be accessible. However, as OPIC approaches 50, the corporation lacks the modern tools to fully engage the private sector in developing countries. To address those deficiencies, we have introduced the Better Utilization of Investments Leading to Development or Build Act. Our bipartisan legislation will reform and consolidate financing activities of OPIC and USAID. The administration and key stakeholders, including the One Campaign, the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, have strongly embraced the goals and concept of our legislation in a companion bill introduced in the House. In a statement of support released last month, the White House said the BUILD Act is broadly consistent with President Trump's commitment to the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum last November that the U.S. is committed to reforming its development finance institutions to better incentivize private sector investment in developing countries as a clear alternative to state-led financing initiatives that undermine state sovereignty. The White House also warned that our development finance tools are outdated, fragmented, and often not well coordinated, hampering our ability to achieve key U.S. foreign policy and national security objectives while contributing to an inefficient use of taxpayer dollars. They also agree that reform will help the U.S. compete more effectively in a new era of strategic competition. Establishing a new development finance corporation provides the private sector alternative to China's aggressive and potentially damaging lending through the Belt and Road Initiative and other finance efforts. China seeks to promote a state-led, centrally planned development model that benefits China first and foremost. While China, China's lending practices are opaque, opaque, estimates of Chinese current and planned lending, often to countries with high debt-to-GDP ratios, ranges from $100 billion to into the trillions. The new U.S. International Development Finance Corporation created by our bill instead would advance responsible lending so citizens and recipient, recipient countries will be full participants in economic growth. With a modern develop, development finance corporation, we could increase the effectiveness and reach of U.S. aid and strength market, strengthen market economies abroad. We could better promote private sector economic growth that creates middle-class consumers and industries 
Not only would this growth help reduce our foreign aid budgets over time, it can lead to consumers abroad who can buy U.S. exports. Both the public sector and private sector interests can benefit from the growth of market economies in developing nations. It is in our national interest to encourage the opportunities that can result from this common interest in economic growth in the developing world. We thank our witness for being here. Uh, we thank him for his service to our nation. And with that, I turn to my friend, our distinguished ranking member, Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for calling this hearing. It's critical that this committee maintains oversight over U.S. development efforts to ensure that they are effectively promoting our interests abroad. And I have long supported expanding our vision of development to ensure the United States can best pursue broader economic statecraft rooted in sound principles of development, diplomacy, and leveraging the private sector. As a matter of fact, when I was chairman of the committee, we authored a white paper on this topic. So it's an issue of uh, some importance. Centuries of history have proved that using American resources to help other countries lift their citizens out of poverty, respond to disasters, and support private sector growth directly contributes to prosperity and stability throughout the world. As we consider modernizing development financing, we must ensure that development, along with defense and diplomacy, remains a pillar of our foreign diplomacy. Specifically, the U.S. Agency for International Development must continue to lead our development efforts in advance of national interests. I am disappointed that USAID does not have a witness here today. USAID's perspective is essential as we move forward, and I will uh, certainly be looking uh, forward to having conversations with Administrator Green uh, before I'm personally ready to move forward. Around the world, uh, nations from the United Kingdom to China use various state-sponsored development financing mechanisms to help their domestic industries invest in developing economies, which in turn contribute to economic growth and job creation in the partner countries. The United States has a different history and model of private business versus state-owned enterprises. The Overseas Private Investment Corporation has an integral role in assisting U.S. to do the business of development in emerging markets. USAID supports private sector partnerships through the Development Credit Authority, the Global Development Lab, and the Private Capital Group. These efforts leverage critical, sustainable partnerships to transition communities towards self-reliance, Administrator Green's central mission. We must take steps to ensure that our government agencies are in the best position to facilitate private sector engagement abroad to foster entrepreneurialism and job growth, infrastructure, and raising worker standards, which ultimately contributes to wider prosperity and potentially new markets for U.S. goods and services. However, I remain concerned about the administration's overall approach to development. The administration's first budget shuttered OPIC. This year, it calls for an enhanced development finance institution with more resources and authorities. And I still don't know what the administration wants to do with the Trade and Development Agency. So I come to this hearing with real concerns about the bigger picture of the administration's foreign policy vision and how a new development finance entity will fit in. The BUILD Act elevates and enhances OPIC's current authorities by consolidating financing entities, including USAID's Development Credit Authority. However, I have several concerns. First, we must ensure that the new Development Finance uh, Corporation's mission has development at its core, 
and does not just function as a bank. Two, a new development finance corporation must have a board that reflects the dynamism and innovation occurring in sectors ranging from finance and international development to human labor and environmental rights. Thirdly, development initiatives must serve our policy objectives while maintaining high levels of accountability to the communities they serve and to the American taxpayer. In closing, I'd like to offer two examples of how development financing can contribute to job growth and U.S. national security. OPIC has partnered with Habitat for Humanity and MicroBuild to help build homes for 120,000 families in 19 countries from Azerbaijan to Zambia. With a roof over their head, individuals and families are far more likely to go to school, to find a job, and to ultimately support their communities. In another example, Holtec, based in Camden, New Jersey, has partnered with OPIC to construct a long-term fuel storage facility in the Chernobyl exclusion zone of Ukraine. This project, by breaking a Russian monopoly on nuclear waste disposal, advances U.S. national security priorities and is expected to generate more than $200 million in procurements of American goods and services. Mr. Chairman, I ask consent that the statements by Habitat for Humanity and Holtec be added to the record at Without this point. objection. Because of stories like these, I have long advocated for multiple tools to pursue a comprehensive policy of economic statecraft. So as we move forward, I look forward to working with you, the administration, and critical voices from civil society and international development organizations to diligently ensure that we maintain the integrity of development operations while building new development finance tools and explore new investment options. Look forward to the testimony and the questions, and thank you again, Mr. Chairman, for an important hearing. Thank you. Our first witness is Mr. Ray Washburn, President and CEO of OPIC, our nation's development finance institution. He's a real estate investor, restaurant developer. Mr. Washburn has served on the board of and loan committees of several banks, infrastructure, construction, and manufacturing businesses well-equipped uh, to lead this great organization. We thank you for being here and, again, for your service. If you would keep your comments to about five minutes, that would be great. And any written documents you have, we'll be glad to enter into the record if you would begin. Thank you. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify today on this critical topic. Chairman Corker, I'd like to acknowledge all the work you have done to advance U.S. foreign policy, from Electrify Africa to efforts to combat human trafficking. You have been a champion for those in need around the globe. Ranking Member Menendez, your leadership has been instrumental in strengthening U.S. engagement in the world, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. Indeed, this committee's bipartisan work has helped set the stage for the administration's proposal for the United States to establish a reformed, more effective de development finance institution with modernized tools and a focus on supporting private sector-driven development. When it comes to meeting the massive development needs around the globe and advancing American foreign policy, this proposal and the legislation the committee is weighing is essential. As you know, development finance uses tools such as loans, guarantees, and political risk insurance to facilitate private sector investment in emerging markets that will have positive developmental impact. These are transactions the private sector won't do on their own. Through OPIC, the U.S. government has used these tools to back projects in key sectors such as power, water, and health that improve life for millions and lay the groundwork for economic growth. Likewise, the U.S. government has used USAID's Development Credit Authority to drive private investment into countries that have not had access to commercial finance. 
This, moder this model for modernizing private investment is only becoming more prominent as the needs in the developing world are just too great to meet with government resources alone. Yet U.S. capabilities have become outdated as we have gone without significant legislative updates. As a result, we lack the modern 21st century mechanisms needed to either compete with countries like China or cooperate with allies like Britain, Germany, and Japan, which are investing heavily in emerging markets. And the global competition for influence is on. While I was in Asia, I saw how China's Belt and Road Initiative is changing the political and economic landscape. The amount of investment China has planned for this initiative is staggering. Aimed at interconnecting 65% of the world's population, one-third of the world's GDP, and a quarter of all goods and services. Of course, the condition of many of these loans is that Chinese firms and labor get the business, and we know what happens when countries can't pay. In December, for example, Sri Lanka gave control of a strategic port to Beijing for 99 years. This comes as China has been stepping up its presence in the Indian Ocean and its critical shipping lanes. Mr. Chairman, we have to be engaged in the developing world with a robust alternative to these state-directed investments which can leave developing countries worse off. And we have that alternative in a new U.S. Development Finance Institution, or DFI. This proposal is a result of the President's executive order on reorganizing government, which promoted a fresh interagency look over several months. We found that the U.S. government's ability to deploy these tools strategically is limited by outdated legal authorities and fragmentation. With this in mind, the administration developed a proposal to improve efficiencies, reform programming, and as envisioned by the national security strategy, elevate these tools to advance U.S. foreign policy goals. The President's budget proposes to consolidate multiple U.S. development finance functions into a new standalone development finance institution. The DFI will have better policy alignment and strong links to the State Department and USAID to ensure its transactions align with U.S. foreign policy and leverage USAID's programming. This includes funding for technical assistance and grants for potential DFI projects that need a bridge to becoming investment ready. We also need governance and management structures to ensure the DFI and USAID's field missions work seamlessly. The new DFI will include reforms to better manage taxpayer risk and ensure its investments are additional to the private sector. We do not support projects that could or should proceed on their own. And we will also ensure that our work upholds the highest environmental, social, and worker rights standards. Another part of a reformed DFI is increased transparency and accountability through expanded inspection and oversight. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, in nine months as the head of OPIC, I've seen the power of the private sector unleashed to advance U.S. policy. OPIC approved a transaction which will increase Ukraine's energy independence from Russia. OPIC formally launched its 2X Women's Initiative to catalyze over a billion dollars in capital to invest in projects that empower women worldwide. And OPIC signed an MOU with our Japanese counterparts to bolster investment in the Indo-Pacific region and beyond. A new modernized DFI could be far more competitive, creating countless opportunities throughout the developing world. But this modernization of development finance cannot happen without the support of this committee. I'm extremely thankful for the leadership of Senator Corker and Coons and the many other senators on the committee for embracing this concept through, through S-2463. Indeed, the administration has noted its strong support for the goals of the legislation. I look forward to working with the committee as the process moves forward 
to ensure the DFI is structured for long-term success. I would be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you very much. Um, I know your statements uh, indicate this, but just for the record and for other members who are not here, the administration fully supports uh, the legislation that uh, we're discussing today. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, I, I listened to the ranking members' comments, and, and I, I think we all have had concerns about where we're going as it relates to uh, being able to help other nations. In some ways, it's somewhat surprising that uh, we have a piece of legislation that the administration is behind, and it looks like in a bipartisan way people want to see occur. Could you share a little bit about some of the concerns that you and others have about what China is, is doing in other countries today? Yes, thank you. Uh, OPEC currently operates in 90 countries around the world. We're open in 130 countries. And as we travel, whether I was in Peru at the Summit of the Americas a few weeks ago to Africa, the Chinese are everywhere. And we're, we cannot match them dollar for dollar, and there's no intent to match them dollar for dollar. But there's a lot of strategic investments we can make to counter the Chinese influence around the world. And that's why I've recently signed an MOU with the Japanese government as well as the Australian government in the Indo-Pacific region specifically to work together on projects that we can not only source together but also invest in together. In fact, this week the, my Japanese counterpart was in Washington and he came over to meet and we went over multiple projects we're looking at doing together. Mm -hmm. What would the equity component, I know today you're constrained only to loan money, but tell us the kind of things that with the addition of using equity, um, tell, us, tell us what that might mean to an organization like hopefully will be created. Well, the way uh, OPIC was originally set up in 1971, there hasn't been any change in our basic structure and how we can invest in projects. And as you know, the world has changed substantially in the finance sector. We were being left out of a lot of projects by other countries because their DFIs all had the ability to actually be put an equity piece in the projects. And so since we only have a debt product, we're getting not only cut out of a lot of projects, but people just don't want us involved because we're senior debt to everyone and they want to be Perry pursue with us and the equity component of it. What uh, my understanding is we've worked, you have worked very closely with USAID and actually there was a markup yesterday as I understand it in the house where some of the, some of the concerns that USAID had with this type of legislation uh, were addressed, and a number of amendments were incorporated yesterday in the House to take care of some of the objections that they had. Can you share with us a little bit about how the process is working with USAID? There's numbers of people on this committee that strongly support the work that they do and obviously don't want to diminish uh, their ability to do their job. Yes, sir. We've, we've worked very closely with USAID. Administrator Green and I have met several times on this. He is supportive. The White House has given us a letter in support, which uh, what is being created through this new bill is a chief development officer. It's a new position, and that'll ensure that we work seamlessly with USAID to meet their, object, their, objection, uh, their uh, objectives of what they want to do. And so what we're bringing in from USAID is actually fairly small. It's an agency that has 30 employees, uh, about $500 million currently, but we understand uh, the importance that they're doing, but we're going to give their field officers a lot more tools to work with. So actually, it's a huge benefit to USAID. They're going to go from being able to do one type loan. Now they're going to have seven to eight different products that they can do. And it's important for us 
to have, because OPIC is really a Washington-centered project. We don't have field offices. It's now USAID and ourselves will be able to work together. It gives them a lot more capital to go out around the world and do projects, and they have the boots on the ground. So USAID will actually be the face of the organization in these countries. Is that correct? Well, they'll be caring. They will be like a rainmaking source for us, yes, sir. Just like we use the Commerce Department now and their uh, field officers, when we travel around the, the world, when we land, we need people on the ground that know the local markets. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Washburn, thank you for your testimony. We've come a long way from the administration's first budget, which uh, where the fate of OPIC was uncertain. We have an ambitious task before us. So let me just follow up on the last uh, question of the chairman. So if we bring Administrator Green here, put him under oath, he's going to say that he fully supports the legislation as it is? Well, I can't speak to what he would say under oath, but I, I, I do know. <laughs> you say he's what, supportive. Would he change under oath? Well, I, I, I can't speak to what his feelings would be. He, I haven't had any objections from him in my meetings mm -hmm. with him. Can you, uh, so to understand where we're headed, I think we have to understand uh, a few questions with regard to the financial health and development impact that you're having at OPIC. So can you discuss uh, for us OPIC's current portfolio as it relates to projects you deem highly developmental, and how do you determine that? Yes, sir. Uh, last week we cut the ribbon in Honduras on a geothermal plant that's going to supply electricity to 40,000 homes in Honduras. And not only, these are homes that either don't have electricity or very spotty electrical service. It's not only going to transform that community, it's also going to enable that area to have businesses to develop and economic activity to happen, whereas before they had no electricity whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Yesterday at our investment committee, we approved a loan in Africa to create cell phone service into four countries that average GDP income in those countries is less than $500 a person. And so those are two examples of how we're changing lives in those, in those and, two countries. And what is your standard for de develop, uh, saying something is highly developmental? What's your, what, what's your, what's your rule? Uh, what's your standard? What's your process by making that determination? Well, every project, we currently we have 675 projects. Everyone has to stand on its own, and each one has its own objectives. So there isn't a in writing standard for something, but we view everything through the lens of, through our committees, and we have many people does walking through. Does something have to have a certain outcome? Does it have to well, have a certain ripple effect? There must be some, some, some uh, Well, we, basis we, we, we do have a developmental matrix, which I'm happy to get for you on I'd like to the see impact that. it happens. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Yes, sir. Let me ask you this. Uh, in discussing OPIC's current development scorecard, uh, the methodology in measuring the development impact of a deal, how, how do you uh, look at that. Developmental. Yeah, looking at your current development scorecard, yes, what's the methodology in measuring the development impact of a deal? Well, that's a matrix. So that it's the same matrix? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, you'll submit that to yes, the sir. committee? Yes, sir. I will. Uh, so the question would be, uh, can that methodology or your matrix uh, be enhanced to support the new Development Corporation's approach to measuring its projects and integrating a monitoring and evaluation protocol for projects beyond a financial uh, close of the project. I'm sure if that's what the committee would like to uh, present in the bill, yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Is that something? But is that something well, that you've considered independently? Uh, I'd have to look at what the language look like. Mm -hmm. uh, let me ask you this. You have indicated an interest in pushing OPIC to do more deals in Latin America, something that I would like to see as well. 
Um, tell us about the profile of investors who are engaging OPIC to do deals in Latin America. What countries and sectors are they gravitating towards? Well, w one thing we've tried to be is a little more outward facing in projects. So we've had teams down, what's the TNT, which is the Northern Triangle, which El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, looking for projects. So rather than waiting for incoming calls under those areas, we've gone down to see what are the needs in those countries. For example, in Honduras, the geothermal plant to supply electricity, and then we try to match them up with uh, development uh, partners. We support right now, 24% of our portfolio is in Latin America. And like I said, I was recently in Lima. We're looking at projects in Peru, Colombia, throughout the Latin America. Let me ask you this. You, you noted that USAID is supportive, but I understand that part of the challenge is that USAID missions, which do much of this work on the ground, don't have visibility or access to OPIC which is demand-driven from U.S. businesses. So how can we increase coordination and cooperation to support development on the ground in pursuit of national interests? Well, that, that's what this bill uh, proposes to do. With, with, this, with, with our new USDFC established and those, those we will send out marketing and, and interface with those people so they know they have a tool to go out and market with, just like we do with the Commerce Department today. And our chief development officer, that'll be, that will be his sole responsibility, is how do we integrate between USAID and their, their purposes and with OPICs, or the new DFIs. One final question. Uh, can you tell us how your board currently operates, the value of diverse opinions and expertise it brings? Mm -hmm. And would you agree that a mix of both finance and private sector voices as well as expertise from labor, human rights, and the interagency process is important. Yes, we have an excellent board uh, today. When projects go to them, they're, they're thoroughly scrubbed down by them, and I think a diverse opinion is very valuable. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I know there was some discussion. You're good with that? Okay. Senator Coons. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez. Um, both for holding this hearing, uh, for the witnesses who are with us here today, and for the opportunity to legislate uh, on an issue that I think is enormously important about how the United States mobilizes its world-leading mastery of private capital uh, to help the developing world. Um, I'd also like to thank, Mr. Chairman, uh, you specifically for your leadership on this and your staff, Andy Olson, who's been great to work with. My own staff, Tom Mancinelli and Anna Yelverton, have uh, pitched in greatly, and this has been a terrific experience. Um, I'm also grateful for the other co-sponsors of this bill, Senators Isaacson, Murphy, Young, Shaheen, Portman, and Kane. Um, President Trump, as has been remarked, um, signaled his strong support for the Build Act from his statements in Vietnam about development finance reform to references in the national security strategy. I also want to thank two former OPEC CEOs, Elizabeth Littlefield and Rob Mosbacher, for their support. Uh, and Mr. Chairman, I'd like to submit a letter from Ms. Littlefield uh, to, the, to our committee for the record. Uh, Mr. Washburn, um, I have greatly enjoyed getting to know you, working with you, and look forward to working together uh, to implement this legislation. Uh, Ms. Littlefield, a former OPIC CEO, in her letter, uh, encourages members to support the Build Act, saying the legislation, and I quote, is the right step at the right time. It will advance America's national security aims. It will tap into the dynamism of America's companies and investors. It will project the best of America's values and accomplish all these in an efficient, cost-effective, and time-tested way, close quote. I agree, and I am optimistic that this important bill 
We'll move forward with broad bipartisan support. Last, I'm grateful to the One Campaign, the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, and the U.S. Chamber for everything they've done to help make this uh, ready to move. Um, just in quick summary, uh, it's because of the ways in which this will change, the scope, the tools um, that you have available to you um, and that the successor um, U.S. International Development Finance Corporation will have accessible to it uh, in order to face the competition that we see in the developing world. In my eight years in the Senate and a number of trips to the developing world, um, our competitors, the Chinese principally, but many others, are everywhere with far more sophisticated and broad tools. Um, so I hope that we can uh, work together to address concerns raised today and to make sure that this moves uh, quickly um, through this committee. Uh, thank you for a chance to make a statement. And uh, Mr. Washburn, it's been a delight to work with you and with you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Washburn, welcome to the committee. Thank you for your service. I will be in uh, Colorado Springs tomorrow. Okay. So I don't know when the last time you were able to make it out there, but I look forward to being out there. I'll be there in June. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, talking about some of the work that we've been doing in Asia, I know you and I have had an opportunity in the past to talk a little, little bit about this. Uh, obviously, uh, an important hearing to, to talk about how we can be expanding opportunities around the globe. World's largest armies stand uh, uh, in Asia. Five of seven U.S. defense treaty allies are in Asia. Uh, we can't simply let China go unchallenged as... Uh, in terms of the tools of economic coercion that they continue to use and threaten U.S. national economic interests. According to projections, by 2030, 66% of the global middle class population will be in Asia, 99% of the middle class consumption will be in Asia. It's a region very much uh, to determine uh, our, our future. Uh, therefore, I wanted to talk a little bit about the bill that I've introduced recently, bipartisan legislation, along with Senator Markey, Senator Cardin, Senator Rubio, and I, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, S-2736, uh, introduced two weeks ago, calls on the administration to engage in one, multilateral, bilateral, or regional trade agreements that increase U.S. Uh, employment and expand uh, the economy, uh, formal, uh, two, formal economic dialogues that include concrete outcomes, three, uh, high-standard bilateral investment treaties between the United States and nations in the Indo-Pacific region. Four, negotiations of the Trade and Services Agreement and Environmental Goods Agreement that includes several major Asian economies. Five, the proactive, strategic, and continuing high-level use of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, the East Asia Summit, and the Group of 20 to pursue U.S. economic objectives in the Indo-Pacific region. ARIA also provides an authorization for a mo more robust U.S. commercial presence uh, throughout the Indo-Pacific uh, to improve U.S. exports, uh, to promote uh, U.S. exports. Additional trade facilitation efforts authorizes the imposition of penalties on entities and governments engaged in the theft of U.S. intellectual property and requires a new comprehensive U.S. policy to promote energy exports to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, I, I give you that summary, Mr. Washburn, um, to ask you this question. Do you believe that the initiatives uh, like those I referenced in ARIA uh, would be a, a help, a boost the United States uh, to build a, a help build a more robust, long-lasting economic commercial presence in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, well, thank you, Senator. I'm not familiar with your legislation, but what you just said is yes, I, I would be. We, as I stated earlier, we just recently signed an MOU with the Japanese government and the, and the Australians. We're currently working on with the Indian government uh, to provide more vehicles for us to invest in throughout that entire region in in all all areas, but. It's very important to us with the Chinese influence in that area and their Belt and Road Initiative that OPIC, or the new DFI, would be used as in that region to find the 
type investments to the what you speak to. Yeah, and, and when we talk to uh, governments around uh, around the region, around the world, quite frankly, that have seen Chinese investments from the government, mm. uh, they talk about the sustainability of those investments, those projects. Could you talk a little bit about whether or not you believe these uh, China's China's investments, particularly in Asia, uh, are sustainable in the long run? Well, what the Chinese are doing is what in real estate business they call loan to own. And what they're doing in these projects, and they did this in Sri Lanka, they're overloaning on projects. They're bringing their own workers in and, in fact, leaving them behind afterwards, not even using local workforces. By putting so much leverage on these projects like they did in Sri Lanka, uh, foreclosing a port that was brand new built, but it had so much debt on it, there's no way it could service it, and they just took it away. So they're using too much debt and throwing too much money at these projects to force these countries into submission on giving these key resources up. I spent a lot of time in Zambia in the, uh, in the summer. We built an orphanage there, and I'll be out there again two weeks this summer. And when you land at the airport there, it's a Chinese terminal. As you're driving in the town, it's a new soccer stadium built by the Chinese. It's all over. And this is a small country in the middle of Africa. So if you can imagine it's happening there, think what it's doing in strategic sea lanes and ports around the world. Well, thank you. And I think uh, particularly in this area, a U.S. presence, long-term strategy is incredibly important. Uh, and uh, U.S. presence uh, means a lot. And so uh, if we're going to take, uh, take an opportunity to benefit and help people learn from uh, subpar investments uh, that China may be making, or at least uh, the penalties that a country may face as a result of cooperating with what once was a beneficial agreement, then we have to be present. And I think uh, ARIA legislation to provide that reassurance is necessary to our allies. Thanks, Mr. Washburn. Thank Mr. you. Thank you. Senator Cardin. First, thank you for your service. Um, I, I strongly support OPEC's functions. We have many Maryland companies that have benefited by it. Uh, but I, I want to drill down a little bit on your efforts in regards to small businesses, minority businesses, women-owned businesses. OPEC has a, a goal of producing a, a certain amount of its business in small businesses. I believe your goal is 30 percent. Uh, could you just go over with me how you are making sure that that goal is achieved and how you go about determining what businesses qualify uh, for that type of uh, analysis? Sure. Uh, thank you for the question. Our uh, initiative that we set up last fall is our what we call our 2X Women's Initiative, and we're catalyzing a billion dollars of investment to go to focused on women-owned businesses. And a specific example would be in Costa Rica, we went in and put a, uh, a lending vehicle with Citibank into a bank in, in, called the Bank of San Jose in Costa Rica. OPIC put in 50 million, Citibank put in 20, and the local bank put in around 10 to $15 million. Of that, 20% is specifically targeted to women-owned businesses. OPIC has never done that before. So we are now doing that throughout our portfolio and small and medium enterprises, SME lending. As we do this throughout the world, that's how we get loans down to small businesses. This week we did a loan, a $100 million project for another bank that focuses in El Salvador and Guatemala. What they do is they take small, medium enterprise loans and 20% of that is targeted towards Can, can you define for me what a small and medium size? It, it would be someone who needs a truck to go deliver you know, bakery goods, because they own a bakery. Or I, I can't give you a dollar, because every country is different, but a small, medium-sized business would be not a GE or somebody, but a smaller, uh, and I can come to you with with our exact 
terms of what an SME loan would be. But what we do is we find the local banks, know their customer, they know the lenders. So by putting the money into those banks, they're able to spread it out organically throughout their, you know, the ecosystem of the banking uh, market that they're in. Yeah, I would appreciate if you could yes, sir. supply that information to us uh, as to how you go about determining. Uh, the 30% is a goal. There's no legal requirement, as I understand. That, that's correct, and it is extremely high priority. That's why the first thing I did when I came in was set up the Women's Initiative to kick that off, because that showed when I was in, I recently was in India, we're helping to finance a fintech in India to where women on their phone or any small business person will have the ability to borrow money, like $5, on their phone, which in a country with a very small GDP is... So if you would get us that information, because as, as we look to trying to partner with you, there are things that we might be able to do to help you... Yes, sir. ...in, uh, in being able to evaluate these types of opportunities in a more aggressive manner. I, I want to go into minority businesses mm -hmm. as well and what you're doing there. The Minority B Business Development Agency is slated, I think, for termination under the, uh, the President's budget, um, and that's an arm within commerce. I think the President says that that duplicates the work being done by the Small Business Administration. I, I want to know what efforts and services you'd use in order to reach out to minority businesses as part of OPEC's function. Well, I personally, as President of OPEC, have reached out. I, I've spoken to many minority groups. I've promoted 75% of our business is with small U.S. businesses that go abroad. Um, so we're out, we actively do market to all comers. 75% would be the number of... Uh, uh, companies, yes. Number of companies. And again, how do you determine that they're small? I'd have to get you the terminology. Okay. I'd be interested how that... Yeah. And yes. how many of those are minority businesses? I'd have to get you that number, yeah. sir. Okay, if you could get that information yeah. to us, I think it would be very helpful. Uh, as you know, during the debate on OPEC, there was a, a challenge as to whether this, the, whether this is really just for big companies or who benefits from OPEC. Uh, we want to make sure that it is an inclusive operation, giving opportunities for minority businesses, small businesses to participate. Uh, and we, we have found uh, in the small business arena, there are certain programs that we have We'd like to see how well that's coordinated by what OPEC is doing in order to make sure that we really are providing opportunities for diversity uh, in American businesses participating in export. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Just a couple last questions. Is the India project you're referring to the one that uh, the President's counselor, Ivanka Trump, was promoting when she was on the trip? That Ivanka was on? Yes. Um, well, no. Yes. But when I was in India and Ivanka was there, we were promoting a, just women's uh, businesses in general, but she wasn't part of... Mm -hmm. I, actually, I didn't even speak on a panel with her or anything. She was there marketing her own mm -hmm. agenda. And, and so the, 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 any loans that you've made there are not in connection with that? Oh, no. No, okay. sir, not at all. Let me ask you this. The Build Act very intentionally removes the U.S. nexus requirement Right. that OPEC has exercised for over 30 years. Why do you think that's the way to go? Well, that's what the committee has decided. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce came out in support of this bill and uh, that provision. And we've got a letter of support, which we're happy to submit to the committee and, and uh, submit it. But yeah, I'm asking you but as we the have, head of Well, OPEC. we have a pre U.S. company preference on every loan we look at, and everything we look at is 
goes through that lens. Yeah, but a preference doesn't mean you have to have a U.S. nexus, right? Yes, sir, but that's correct. That's correct. And you think that's the way to go? That's how the committee has presented it to us. I didn't ask you that. Well, I think it gives OPIC the ability to have greater flexibility in doing projects. What assurances can you give uh, the Congress that uh, if this is the law, that you'll be financially prudent in entering into deals with non-U.S. companies and potentially state-owned enterprises? Well, again, we believe that uh, there is going to be preference given the U.S. companies. Um, as far as the board signs off on projects, so I, all I can say is it goes through a lens of America first. That's not, that's not very reassuring. Well, Senator, I, the, the language presented to us and that came out of the House and then it's going to come out of, of your committee is that was the language that was in the... Uh, well, my point, but, my point, the reason to have witnesses is not to tell right. me what the committee wants. I understand what the chairman right. and um, Senator Coons and others want. Mm -hmm. The reason to have you here is to gather your expertise. So right. my question is, let me repeat it again, how are we going to have an assurance that you're going to be financially prudent in investing in non-U.S. companies or, you know, uh, state-owned enterprises, which you would be allowed to do under this version of the law. Sure. Well, look, in o OPIC's history, I think the agency has been extremely prudent. It's made a profit for 40 years in a row. And our lens that we go through on loan committees or investment committees uh, is a very stringent process to go through. And so it, we have the America First lens on everything that we do. I, the assurance I can give you is just my assurance that, you know, this is an American agency and that is the focus on what we're doing. The U.S. Chamber, again, looked at it and issued a letter in support. Well, I appreciate that the U.S. Chamber, which is about promoting business at the end of the day, has its interest. But my job here as a United States Senator is to promote the national interests of the United States, mm -hmm. the national security of the United States, and development policy across the globe that pursues that national interest. That may not be bottom dollar oriented, which is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce does. So mm -hmm. that they have issued an endorsement is fine, but it is not my guiding post to understand whether or not something is good. So I'm looking forward to getting a better understanding as to how, since you don't have the U.S. nexus anymore, notwithstanding with the lens of America first, but it's a lens that isn't uh, 2020 because you can invest in uh, foreign entities, you can invest in uh, state-owned enterprises, and when we do that, that changes the dynamics for me about what our focus is. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. If I could, just on that note, I mean, right now, I guess, through USAID, we grant money to, uh, to various entities around the world. We just give it away, right? Mm -hmm. Is yes, that correct? Sir. And so I guess the purpose of this is to try to have a return on investment and to get other enterprises in these countries that are impoverished to flourish by loaning the money based on free enterprise kinds of standards. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And look, our goal is to strengthen these, these markets yeah. through private investment. And if, if a U.S. company is not going to go into a market that needs a specific thing in another yeah. Well, if, willing to. if I could, I, I mean, one of the issues that I think um, has existed and certainly been an issue to me is that when we have U.S.-centric only lending, um, 
which we want to make sure that our U.S. companies are doing business around the world, no question, as Senator Menendez was just alluding to. But we also want the economies of these countries uh, to flourish, and many of the companies there obviously are not owned by U.S. companies, uh, but we want them to be on their own feet. Is that correct? That's correct. And so this is a way of leveraging U.S. resources where we're not giving it away. It's actually returning back to the taxpayers, but allowing development to take place in a real market-oriented way versus just granting money away, which is the way our existing programs are typically with USAID. Is that correct? That's correct, sir. So, so it's another tool that uh, uses the kind of standards that we use in our own country uh, to help these countries flourish. That's correct. Yeah. Senator Kane. Mr. Chair, I'm going to save my questions for panel two. Okay. All right, Chairman, just a comment in response to your comments about mine. Uh, there are times in which uh, you say giving it away. I'm sure when I, when I see, when I, well, I'm sure when I see your methodology or matrix, whatever, there are important development projects in the world that would not meet the matrix that OPIC puts out. So there's a balance between that which we do through the private sector yeah. and that which we do because we think it's in our national interest. It's not just about giving it away. We never right. give it away without a purpose, right? Sure. No, no question. And I support that also. My point is, is that uh, what this development organization would be doing under this redefined, certainly you're going to give preference to U.S. businesses, but is not unlike what we do every single day with USAID, only in this particular case, we're asking for repayment and return on investment. So it's, a, it's another way of helping these very entities that we're already helping through USAID that I also support. Any other questions? Um, with that, we appreciate uh, your Thanks. leadership. Thank you for being here, and uh, we look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you. Call the second panel up and <clears throat> thank you, Bertie. Our first witness is Mr. Daniel Rundy, Director of Director for the Project on Prosperity and Development at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He was previously the director of the Office of Global Development Alliances at USAID. He's also worked with global private foundations and corporations to leverage funds for the development finance partnerships. Our second witness is Mr. George Ingram, senior fellow at the Global Economy and Development at Brookings Institution. He previously uh, served as principal deputy assistant administrator at USAID and has an extensive background in public and private sectors on development policy. We thank you both for being here and 
It's likely that I think you'll be able to answer some of the questions that were asked just a moment ago. We thank you uh, so much for your previous service uh, for our nation and what you're doing now. And with that, Mr. Rundy, if you would just begin and limit your comments to about five minutes, any written materials, we will be glad to enter in the record. Sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for asking me to testify before you today. It's a privilege and an honor. Uh, I want to recognize the incredible work of dozens of staffers on this committee, uh, HVAC, a number of key congressional offices, the team at OPIC, and at the Trump White House who have made all this possible. I want to especially single out uh, you, Senator Corker, and Senator Coons, um, for, and your teams for your leadership on this. Uh, let me make several key points with my time today. Uh, first is that uh, this committee and Congress should approve the BUILD Act for four reasons. The first is the world has changed. The developing world needs more American investment and more private investment generally. Two, China is currently filling the void. A new development finance corporation, a DFC, can be part of the answer to the China challenge. Frankly, China is eating our lunch around the world. Uh, we cannot change China's policy, but we can have a better offer than China. Uh, this new DFC is part of that better offer. Uh, we need a new national economic strategy to organize ourselves better, and this new DFC will be a part of that larger strategy. Uh, third, foreign assistance is still a very necessary component of U.S. development, uh, but foreign aid will not be enough or may not be at times the right kind of money to solve every challenge that we're going to encounter. The Young Shaheen Task Force on um, reforming foreign assistance talked about foreign assistance as a catalyst and bringing others in, including the private sector. Fourth, the new DFC can help with a series of national security and foreign policy challenges better than our current set of development finance instruments. Refugees, drug-financed gangs, terrorists, and human trafficking, all are challenges that can be partially addressed with projects financed by this new DFC. We have a youth bulge in places such as Africa, the Middle East, and the Northern Triangle of Central America. Um, where a possible demographic dividend could turn into a demographic nightmare without enough economic growth and jobs for these young people. Um, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation is a powerful development agency, but is in need of a refresh to allow it to fully compete. Our allies want to work with OPIC, but given some of its limitations, it's difficult uh, for them to work with us and to work with OPIC. The current Senate version of the BUILD Act provides several important improvements to OPIC. It make, allows it to make equity investments, to provide technical assistance, provides a 20-year authorization, and creates a preference for American investors. Let me address specifically Senator Menendez's point in this, and that rather than a requirement, this is important in contexts such as Afghanistan, where we need American soft power, but it's almost impossible to get an, a credible American investor to go. So that would be the reason to have a preference. I'm happy to talk about that further in the Q&A, Senator. Let me just make a couple of other points. Having said all this, the bill could benefit from some small improvements that can happen in the normal market process. My suggestions for improvements are related to the more explicit institutional linkages between USAID and the new Development Finance Corporation. When USAID reaches for finance tools, they should understand the breadth of what the new DFC can do. And when the new DFC is thinking about an investment, it needs to understand what AID can do. Uh, USAID will still need to work with and support the private sector through host country regulators across an industry, through chambers of commerce, or sometimes with particular companies. Um, for example, AID helped set the table for the kinds of massive investments in the telecom sector in places like Africa or Afghanistan. They do technical assistance working with regulators to allow for private investments to happen. So the kinds of things I'm describing are setting the table kinds of work, not making investments. 
Some specific improvements for your consideration for the bill. First, the Development Credit Authority has been tremendously successful as a part of USAID. The person who runs the Development Credit Authority function needs to know AID, and the best way to ensure this would be to make the new office director dual-hatted as a USAID and DFC employee and making the office director a USAID Senior Foreign Service slot. Second, the position of Chief Development Officer envisioned at the DFC should also be dual-hatted, accountable to USAID and the DFC. This Chief Development Officer could also be a USAID Senior Foreign Service slot. Third, I think the new DFC is going to need a small cadre of full-time investment officers overseas. These investment officers should be embedded in USAID missions and should work as part of the USAID mission team. Uh, this is not your grandparents' developing world. It's richer, freer, and has far more agency than it did 40 years ago. If we do not meet the hopes and aspirations of our friends and allies, they will take their business to the Chinese. At the same time, a number of national security challenges require private sector solutions as part of our response. Rather than look at many developing countries as simply recipients of aid, we must look at them as partners who desire a new relationship built around trade, investment, and economic growth. The BUILD Act, when passed, will help us to respond to all this. And I consider the BUILD Act to have the potential to be the most important development legislation that will be passed in the next 10 years. So thank you for this opportunity to testify before the committee on this important topic, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Ingram. Chairman Corker and Senator Mendez, my appreciation for the invitation to testify today, and special thanks to the Chairman and Senator Coons for introducing the BUILD Act, recognizing the importance of strengthening the U.S. Economic Development Toolkit. Dan has laid out the rationale for a more robust U.S. development finance instrument and the strengths of the BUILD Act. So I will focus on just four ways in which I believe the act could be, the bill could be strengthened. The development mandate, to your point, Senator Menendez, the bill establishes development as the mission, but without clarity and definition or scope. I think that gap can be filled very easily with a definition of development in the bill. And the example I would use, a good model, is the MCC statute which establishes as the purpose of the MCC to promote economic growth, the elimination of extreme poverty, and strengthen good governance, economic freedom, and investment in people. The Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network, which I co-chair, has shared with committee staff this and other improvements to the development mandate covering accountability, evaluation, learning, and transparency. And with respect to transparency, Language should be added to the bill to specify that the data, the data must be publicly available and it must be available on a project-by-project project basis, not just on a country basis as provided by the bill, and that data must be timely, comprehensive, and comparable as is provided in the Foreign Aid Accountability and Transparency Act, which this committee authored. Second point on the IDFC-USAID relationship a strong and proactive relationship between the two is critical to U.S. achieving its development objectives. The bill seeks to do this through designating the administrator of USAID as the vice chair of the board and suggests the position of a chief development officer. I would suggest that that position should be mandated by the bill and the duties of that officer should be enumerated as I lay out in my, my statement for the record.
The fact is, legislation can only lay the framework, but not hardwire relations between two agencies. And while agency coordination has improved in recent years, particularly through such programs as Power Africa, it ultimately comes down to personalities, who's in the right place. And this committee can facilitate the relationship through its advice and consent authority to ensure that the appropriate person, someone with extensive development expertise, hopefully at USAID, fills that position. Third point, the Office of Private Capital and Microenterprise. The bill would move the office to the IDFC. This is unnecessary and a mistake. This relatively small office serves as USAID's center of excellence and technical knowledge for private sector activities. My written statement illuminates the centrality of private enterprise to USAID's activities. If the office were moved, USAID would simply have to recreate the technical capacity so as to maintain the ability to provide advice and guidance to country missions and other units. In fact, given the importance of the two agencies collaborating on programs and projects and the role that USAID performs in advancing business-friendly environments, the IDFC needs AID to have this technical expertise. Finally, on labor, environment, and human rights. The OPIC statute sets out specific mandates in these areas. <clears throat> Today's expectations and sound business practices are even stronger than when these provisions were written into law. Business leaders have come to understand that these are not just nice cosmetic social concerns, that following them can benefit the bottom line. Companies today are adopting comprehensive commitments on sustainability as reflected by some 7,500 companies issuing sustainability and responsibility reports. In complying with its legislative mandate in this arena and following corporate practice, OPIC utilizes the performance standards on environmental and social sustainability of the International Finance Corporation. A simple and elegant legislative alternative to the multiple legislative provisions is simply to mandate that the IDFC should follow the IFC guidelines. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both very much, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. It's very, very worthy. Uh, Mr. Ingram, um, I, I listened to your uh, suggested improvements uh, with interest. What, what are your I think you've made it pretty clear that the merging of OPIC and AID's Development Credit Authority, how do you think that will affect the overall development approach and impact? The overall development uh, Approach impact. and impact? Um, I think there's a, a strong case to be made to bring for the development finance instrument to have all the tools of development finance and guarantee is that OPIC has a history, uh, USAID has a his history of creating new programs, OPIC, TDA, and spinning them off. Um, and I look at uh, the Development Credit Authority as that. But I think that the opportunities and the, nature, the potential for business in this arena is so vast that I like the way the bill is written now in that it moves the DCA over to the IDFC, the new entity, 
but it doesn't take that authority away from AID. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you could have both agencies engaging in different types of guarantee programs. Mm -hmm. Now, what are your thoughts on the financial tools that are expanded in this legislation? Is there a need for Congress to legislate more financial risk mitigation, transparency in the bill? You did mention the one element of having every project uh, publicly listed, um, especially as it relates to the new proposed equity authority and a reboot of enterprise funds. The answer is I think the equity authority is very important. All of OPIC's uh, European sisters have the equity authority. I sit on a board of an organization that set up an equi equity fund, and it had to go to the European DFIs to get the financing. It couldn't go to OPIC. OPIC only came in at the end with debt finance. So OPIC was not competitive with its Europeans. And I think OPIC's existing risk mitigation processes will serve the equity just as well as it serves the financing today. Okay. And uh, last question for you. Uh, is OPEC and potentially the new development corporation working in the right countries? What's your opinion to access uh, to markets in highly development countries versus the current proposed, excuse me, proposed target countries that appear to be more middle income? I think the legislation is correctly written today, which it emphasizes, gives priority to poor, developing, transitioning countries, but allows OPIC to op operate in all developing countries. Because I think there will be opportunities in more advanced developing countries where it's appropriate for OPIC to be active. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Rune, in your testimony, you emphasize how this is not our grandparents' development financial institution, and I get that. Uh, can you provide specifics on how we can update the enterprise fund mechanism? In my experience, these funds have largely been signs of political support for market reforms in countries coming out of conflict, but the development and economic results of these funds have been very limited. Can you speak to that? Yes, I think that the enterprise funds, as they were imagined 25 years ago, were ahead of their time, but they were very important. There were a number of enterprise funds in Eastern Europe that were very successful. Poland, for example, and others, actually, they, they were when they were set up, did they, no one imagined that they would return a financial return. That wasn't the idea of what they were supposed to do. But um, I think it's a, a little bit of a function if we want to make a full market return or we want to make specific development outcomes as our priority with the enterprise funds. But I do think they're an important complement to what this new DFC can do. And in my written testimony, I referenced the fact that I think that finding new generation of enterprise funds would be important. I think several things we might do. I do think it's important to have uh, name somebody as a, a, an activist board chair. I think we should keep that. That was one of the innovations. And in many instances, that has been successful. There were a few that it wasn't. Uh, and I think we need to learn from our mistakes. But then second, I think that um, we ought to be able to bring in other forms of other private capital and other investors. Originally, as they were envisioned, it was only U.S. government money that could be brought to the table. So I think those would be two things that I would think about. One is to keep the, the, the having a, bo a, a board that's brought in from the outside. I would keep that. But I would allow them to raise capital from, from other sources as well and bring them in. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to your wit the witnesses for being here today. Um, I want to ask about fra fragile states and combating violent extremism and how uh, a more comprehensive financial tool, 
development strategy can help us with that. Uh, our chair had David Cameron here a few months back, and he talked about work he's doing on fragile states and the need to invest more in them to deal with some of these national security issues. Uh, I had a briefing two days ago about the deaths of American soldiers in Niger, which was very troubling, and this is in a part of Africa where we have had a lot of requests for more U.S. investment and involvement. Um, two years ago, I think, in the NDAA process in the Armed Services Committee, AFRICOM came to us and they asked for the ability to transfer monies if they felt like the best way to counter violent extremism was to do development projects. They asked for the ability to transfer monies with the SECDEF sign-off over to USAID and state. So they also believe the power of development in combating violent extremism. The fact that they had to ask us, though, suggested that we maybe were putting our dollars in the wrong places. And I am very troubled about an administration that is proposing significant reduction to development funding. But talk a little bit about if we do development right, and especially if we attract private investment the right way, how that can be beneficial as we try to help fragile states encounter violence in those nations. Thank you very much, Senator. And I want to also thank you for all your leadership in the Northern Triangle. Thanks for all you're doing on that, on that important region for the United States. I think so, the most important social program is a job. And I think in some ways, some of the most important things we can do to make ourselves secure is to have broad-based economic growth in some of the world's toughest places. And so I think a new development finance corporation um, should be willing and able to lean in and make investments, not making a full market return, but a mixture of investments, technical assistance, working with AID to create uh, an enabling environment for jobs so that people feel they've got a shot at life where they're living. And so, I mean, young people are going to use their energy in either good ways or bad ways. And we want to channel this large youth bulge in places like Africa. We're going to have a doubling or tripling of the population. We have a youth bulge in Central America and a youth bulge in the Middle East. Young people are going to use their energies either for good or for not so good. And so I think we want to be using the new DFC in partnership with AID to try and create the opportunities for these young people to, to live the, the lives that, they, uh, that God wanted them to live and have it, you know, use their God-given talents in, in ways that, um, that make sense. So I think it's very, very important. We, we ha I, I, when I talk to military officers, um, General Kelly, I think, really understands this in the administration. So I think, there's a, I think Mark Green, Ambassador Green, really understands this. So I think you have folks in the White House, you have folks in, um, the, um, in, in the development side of the House and in the military who understand this. So I think, I think in partnering with, this, with the Senate and with the Congress, I think we could, we could find our way to, to do yet more in fragile states along those lines. Can I ask you this, since you're not currently part of the administration, so you don't have to give us a party line, how do you square that, that there are people who seem to understand that with these budgets that come over to us that suggest we want to cut these priorities. Is it just a, well, thanks. a, just, yeah, just I was a big the, tug of war between you know, the people I, who know yeah, stuff so and those who don't? Or? I'm, I'm a Republican. I was yeah. in the Bush administration, yeah. but I'd say half of my job at CSIS right now is trying to stop stupid things from happening. And mm -hmm. I think cutting, cutting the budget by 30% is a bad idea. I would think it's a mistake. And I think that, um, I think that the Congress, has, in its wisdom, has uh, had a different view. And mm -hmm. so I think, but I, I think there's plenty of smart folks, and I think they're just, that we're having to balance a number of different positions in, in, in any administration, there's different viewpoints. And so I think the Congress has an important role to 
to help have a dialogue with the administration. I think there are many of reasonable folks. I also think the other thing I would say is, as the administration has come online, they've had um, conversions, sort of uh, road to Damascus conversions on a number of different issues. If you just look at this conversation that we're having, mm -hmm. the first budget that they put out said we're gonna zero out OPIC. That was a, a terribly stupid idea. Um, and I wrote an article said we shouldn't be eliminating OPIC, we should be putting it on steroids, among many of the other things I'll mm -hmm. be submitting for the record. And so I'm pleased to see that they're putting it on steroids. Yeah. So I think some of it is about having a dialogue with senators here and staff to say, let's not do stupid things. And I also think to make sure that we understand our security interest and that this is enlightened self-interest. Mm -hmm. And the administration over time has, under, has seen that and understood. I think the national security mm -hmm. strategy they put out was an excellent national security strategy. So I, I give, we need to work with them and partner with them and, and have a dialogue. Mr. Chair, could I have Mr. Ingram, if, if you have additional thoughts, Mr. Ingram, on this national security um, interlink with appropriate uh, development, including <clears throat> private development, if I could have him extend my time. I'm, I'm glad to have it. I've enjoyed this. <laughs> uh, thank you, Senator Kane. Um, I was going to start just the way Dan started, jobs, jobs, jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and what I would add is a couple of years ago, I looked at USAID's 1,600 public-private partnerships that it had supported over the prior decade and a half. And at the end of all this, I said, well, I wonder if any of them are in fragile states. And what I found was that a quarter of them were in fragile states. <clears throat> My skeptical colleague said, well, it's all in natural resource extraction. I looked at that. It wasn't. It was in home products. It was in technology. And to, to go to Senator, to skip from here to Senator mm -hmm. Mendez's point on the U.S. nexus, mm -hmm. you've made the point for why we need to, to soften the U.S. nexus, because in some of those fragile countries, there won't always be an American company there that, you, that offers the opportunity to create the jobs, to promote the development. And OPEC's European sisters don't have a national nexus. And just as Senator Corker, the chairman, is trying to provide more flexibility and U.S. food aid programs from always having to buy U.S. products, and all development agencies have moved away from bi-national, we need to do that in the development finance area, and I think this legislation does it in a very smart way of saying there's a preference for U.S. For, for US companies, but it doesn't always have to be a U.S. company. Let me just add to what George has said. On this issue of preference, I think it's very, very important. I think we should always prefer to work with an American company. And I think we might even have some limitations as to how much ought to be non-American, but there are gonna be instances, if we're gonna go down market, we're gonna to go to the toughest places in the world, Niger or the Sahel, or we're gonna to go to Afghanistan, most American companies aren't gonna go there or they're gonna have, or we're, or we're gonna to have to prove to them that there are opportunities. And sometimes it's gonna be working with a local company or it's gonna be working with a European company or a South African company so I think there are going to be instances where, where this new DFC needs the ability to do that in these toughest places. If we want to go to the poorest places, we need to give them a little bit more flexibility. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Rundy, we were, uh, Senator Menendez and I were commenting, that obviously you're not lobbying for a job within the administration, <laughs> Colonel. <laughs> and so... Uh, I'm working on my subtlety and nuance, Senator. <laughs> well, you're providing a lot of entertainment, and we appreciate it. <laughs> But we think it's but, extraordinarily refreshing, Mr. Chairman. So, 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 
you've had some concerns about the development budgets in the past and just foreign aid budgets. Um, it, it would appear to me that those initial budgets coming, coming in were possibly an attempt to show that you were trying to cut government spending because you're unwilling to deal with the entitlement piece. And yet, if you look at what we've actually done, we haven't cut those budgets, have we? And so I think there has been an evolution here, and I know that while many, some of the members here have, have been critical of the administration in that regard, it does seem as if this is a very enlightened approach, is it? Senator, I, I think that the, the administration uh, is willing to have a dialogue and, and to have a conversation about, about these issues. And I think it's been learning on the job in a, in a constructive way, if I can say that. And so I think this is an example, this topic is an example of that. And so I don't think we can balance the, uh, the, the American national budget on the back of the 150 account, which is the account for right. foreign assistance. It's too teeny. Um, and it's a, it's a part we need it. If we talk to our military leaders and our diplomats, they say we need it. Yeah. Uh, we can't just use foreign aid alone. I've, I've paid my mortgage on paying, you know, on about typical foreign assistance. We need foreign assistance, and it's an important part of it, but we need this additional set of tools yeah. because the world has changed. And so I think the administration understands that, and I'm, I'm so pleased that the two, the two of you gentlemen are, are convening this, this meeting today to have this conversation. And so as we, as we look at this, you know, I know there's always skepticism, I understand the world we live in. Um, if the administration happens to support something, then in, in this environment, it, it, can, it can create some skepticism, let's be honest. But what you would say as someone who apparently has had concerns with the administration and some of the things that may have been put forth, this is something that you think is a huge step forward at, for our nation has nothing to do with partisan politics. This is some. This is some, actually something we should have done years ago. I, I think this is this is one of the things that keeps me in the business. This this legislation keeps me in the business. I think the the bipartisan nature of this this is this is about the changed world. If you care about international development, you care about poor people. If you look at the Addis Ababa Financing for Development Conference of 2015, if you have trouble sleeping at night, you can read the communique of the Addis Ababa. But but truly, what it said is that foreign assistance is a catalyst that we need to bring in other, we need to move from billions to trillions. We're going to need to finance $1.7 trillion a year of infrastructure in Asia every year. We're not, there's not enough foreign aid in the world. We still need foreign aid, and we need AID, but we need this new DFC and AID to work together. And so I know that we are in a particularly partisan moment. I would just respectfully, for the record, say that um, this has been a truly bipartisan exercise. I've been so encouraged by the work of you, Senator Corker, and Senator Coons and their staffs. People have worked tirelessly across the political spectrum on this. I've been particularly gratified by the way the Trump administration, the Trump administration staff has been great on this. And so I know there's distrust and there's, there's tensions, but I just want to say this has been a very important bill, and I think... Um, the, the current version that you have in front of your committee is an excellent bill, and I, I, you know, I work on these issues for seven years full time. Like I said, if you have trouble sleeping at night, I've written several papers on this topic as well myself. So I think your oral, oral presentations are probably more enlivening, but yeah, so Mr. less <laughs> less sapporific, but yes. Mr. But look, it's, anyways, I'll stop there. Okay, Mr. Ingram, what 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 is your view of of the administration evolving to a place where this type of legislation would be supported. 
the answer is I'm very pleased to the, see the administration change its position and recognize the importance of development finance. Um, I think we, as Dan says, grant assistance is very important in promoting development, but it's in this day, it's in a static stage um, at a time when private fan finance is growing. And the U.S. needs a stronger tool to be able to engage that private finance with those companies and to help edge them into activities that have a, a stronger development impact. you have any other? Just a comment, Mr. Chairman, since we're having fun. Um, so uh, first of all, let me say that uh, with all the remarks about uh, partisanship, uh, I'm proud that the, this committee overwhelmingly, for the most part, works in a very bipartisan manner. Some of us have very deeply held views about development assistance in the world uh, and how it promotes it. So we're just trying to reconcile that with uh, a new paradigm, and uh, I don't think that should be seen as partisan. As it relates to the administration's budgets uh, and their attempts to cut, uh, I just find it interesting that uh, some of us consider a $2 trillion tax bill unpaid for uh, largely focused on uh, corporations as an entitlement as well. So it's just, the pay I guess it depends how you look at the world. So thank you, Mr. Chairman, for that opportunity. Would you guys like to? <laughs> I, I would not disagree with Senator Menendez. I would not disagree with him at all. <laughs> I'm generally very talkative, but I have nothing to add. You have any other comments? Listen, thank you uh, both very much for being here. You're both former USAID uh, employees uh, and leaders. Uh, my guess is you come from different sides of the aisle. We do. And uh, it, it appears to me that both of you, with some changes I know, um, strongly, strongly endorse um, this this ability, the the, the the ability that this bill provides to help us really move into the 21st century as it relates to, to helping people in poverty not be in poverty. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, sir. Uh, and the other thing I would say, Senator Corker, it's, it's particularly, I, I love seeing this bipartisanship because I cut my teeth on the first OPIC reauthorization as a House staffer in 1974, and the Democrats were attacking OPIC. Um, five years later, when the next reauthorization came up, the Republicans attacked it. Um, and it's really very gratifying to see both parties coming together now and understanding the importance of its activities in the world. Let me just add, uh, Senators, that um, I think if this, once this bill gets passed, and I hope it does get passed, that I think it could create an icebreaker for other, for other projects that need to be done. And so I think this coalition, I think it's gonna create momentum, I think, for other things that we, we need to tackle in, in this sphere. Well, thank you both. Um, the record will remain open for written questions through the close of business on Monday. If you could, I know you have other jobs, but to the extent you could answer those fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. Uh, we thank you both for your service to our country. And with that, the meeting is adjourned. <laughs>